today we are um, we're finishing up <clears throat> our uh, our series called Belief in the Age of Skepticism, which from start to finish was a series uh, that's designed to build your faith. And so today uh, I want to conclude um, by making one final case for Christianity. And I've known for a number of weeks now exactly which text I wanted to spend some time in to help me do that. I want to read it to you. It's um, Acts chapter 26. It'll be verses 22 through 32. Paul speaking. It says, To this very day I have obtained help that comes from God, and I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. As he was making his defense this way, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, You're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment, for the king knows about these matters. It's to him I'm actually speaking boldly, for I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his notice, since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. So the king, the governor, Bernice, and those sitting with them got up, and when they'd left, they talked with each other and said, this man's doing nothing that deserves death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been released if he'd not appealed to Caesar. This is God's word. So what I want to do first here is provide a little bit of context and explain why I really do think this text is the perfect text to end our, end our time with. What you're, you're dealing with here is uh, Paul is on trial before the most powerful people that he ever stood before in his lifetime. He's, he's standing before King Agrippa, who was the king of Judea, and then Festus, who was the imperial administrative governor. And it's them and it's their whole entourage. And uh, Paul was in prison. He's been charged with a number of really serious crimes, up to and including sedition and heresy. Uh, one was a big deal to the Romans. The other was a big deal to the Jews. And so in all of chapter 26, Paul's providing his defense. But it's only at the end of his defense, in the verses that we're looking at today, uh, that the real goal of Paul's speech becomes clear. And what's clear in these verses that we're looking at is that it was never about defending himself. Paul's goal from start to finish is actually what my goal has been throughout this entire nine-week series, uh, which is to persuade. And Agrippa realizes that, and he's kind of taken back when he realizes that, that Agrippa literally holds the keys to Paul's life in his hands, and he realizes that Paul's not even trying to get off the hook. He's trying to persuade people to the truth of Christianity. And so Agrippa says, wait a minute, Paul, are you trying to persuade me to become a Christian? Is that seriously what this is about? And you can almost see a smirk on Paul's face when he says, not exactly. I'm actually out to persuade you and literally everyone else who can hear me about the truth of Christianity. And so what I wanted to do before I look at the way that Paul goes about that is I wanted to take a couple minutes on the front end of our time together and ask a question that you have maybe never asked before. Uh, How is someone uh, persuaded that something is true? I'm sure, you know, because your line of work or just different life experiences you've had, you, you've probably at some point in your life tried to persuade somebody to the truth of something. So let me ask an interesting question. Uh, how does someone get persuaded that something is actually true? The answer is, uh, <coughs> it's complicated. And that question will take you back to really that, the, the history, 300 years ago, to the history of Western intellectual thought. Uh, so, so let me kind of summarize that here. About 300 years ago, we began something that was called the Enlightenment Project. And the Enlightenment Project was this idea that you could come to certainty and you could be persuaded about something only if it could be proven. Uh, and, and so this, uh, this project that emphasized reason alone, the idea was let's, let's do away with our beliefs, let's do away with God, let's do away with faith and tradition and intuition and all that kind of stuff, um, because you, you should really only believe something and you can only be certain about something if it can be proven rationally and empirically. Um, 
Of course, that idea still has influence today. If you've ever heard somebody say, you know, I'll believe in God if you can prove his existence to me, or I'll believe in Christianity if you can prove it to me, that's a mindset that's very much influenced by the Enlightenment Project. But it's, it's important to note when talking about this that that idea is no longer the general consensus. And the reason for that is because, you know, the, 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 the foundational kind of hope underneath the Enlightenment Project was that if we all do away with our beliefs and faith and tradition and all that stuff, and we just focus on reason and being rational and what we can empirically prove, the hope was, well, then we'll, we'll finally agree and we'll finally achieve unity as the human race. And obviously, that didn't happen. You know, here we are 300 years later, and I think most people would probably say we're about as divided as we ever have been, not only in our culture, but globally. And, and what's interesting is uh, everyone, if you, if you just observe arguments, pretty much everybody thinks the same thing. No matter what side of the argument they're on, they think, well, I am using reason. I'm using, you know, I'm being rational. It's everybody else who's being irrational and everybody kind of butts heads. And so what we've come to understand, rightly so, is that reason, enough is not, uh, reason alone is not enough to persuade somebody to the truth of something. It's reason uh, plus other things that convinces uh, a person to believe that something is true. So you fast forward to today. Today we're living in what's called, you've probably heard this phrase before, a postmodern culture. And in our culture, the pendulum has kind of swung, swung to the opposite extreme. And so what you see uh, is increasingly common in our culture is, is the belief that you really can't be sure that anything's true because people basically just believe kind of what they're raised to believe. And so the, the, the theory according to that idea is that you, whatever beliefs you hold today, you really only hold those beliefs instead of a different set of beliefs because that's what your family or your culture conditioned you to believe. And honestly, there is some truth to that. Sociological studies have proven time and time again that we, as people, uh, tend to find most plausible the arguments of people that we like and the arguments of people who we want to like us. And that explains why it's so common to hear a story of, for instance, you know, you have a child raised in a very religious, traditional home. They seem to adopt the views of their parents. Then they grow up and they go to, you know, a secular university uh, where now all of a sudden they're surrounded by people who kind of laugh at the beliefs that they were raised to believe themselves. And so they ditch their first set of beliefs. They adopt new set of beliefs. And the reason for that is because as people, uh, we tend not only to believe things because of um, how reasonable those ideas are, but because certain ideas help us feel included in a community. And, and so what I want to do before I get into this actual passage is let me just examine both of those extremes. Because on one side of the coin, uh, the one extreme says you should not believe anything unless it can be empirically proven. Pause. If someone says uh, you should only believe something if it can be empirically proven, then one question that that statement raises is, can you empirically prove that statement? Can, <laughs> I can't say that without chuckling. Can you empirically prove to me that I should only believe something if it can be empirically proven? And the answer is no, of course you can't do that. Uh, that statement at bottom is nothing more than a deeply held belief, otherwise known as a faith statement. How's that for hilarious irony? So that statement that you should only believe something if it can be empirically proven literally fails to meet its own criteria. Uh, you go to the other end of the more uh, modern-day extreme, which says, actually, there's really no way to tell what truth is because everybody just basically believes what their culture tells them. Uh, let's think about that statement for a minute. If, if, if you hold to that idea, what you're really saying is there is no such thing as universal truth. Everybody just believes what they're conditioned to believe. Well, if that statement's true, then it means that what you just said is not universally true, and you only believe that because you have been culturally conditioned to believe it. So the point is, both of these extremes are wrong. Both of these extremes are, are too simple, and they fail to see the whole picture. And so everything I've set up to this point, I'm just making... Um, trying to make the point that persuasion, uh, persuading a human being, for you to get persuaded that something is true, it's actually a very, it, it's, it's a multifaceted, it's a complex, it's a very dynamic thing. And the reason why that is, at least according to the Bible, is because you are a creature that is created in the image of God. 
And because of that, you are incredibly dynamic, you are multi-layered, and, and you are, you're very complex. And, and I don't know of any other belief system that will honor the complexity of your being like the Christian worldview. Because the Bible will affirm from, from, from start to if, if, if you've, you know, if you hop around in different circles, you'll notice that, that some you know, ways of thinking tend to reduce you to just a physical, biological creature. Some ways of thinking will reduce you to just an emotional, psychological creature. Some ways of thinking will reduce you to just a spiritual, existential creature. The Bible never does that. The Bible affirms every aspect of your multifaceted being. And so the Bible will affirm that, yes, you are rational, but you're also emotional. Yes, you are a physical being, but you're also, you have a spiritual aspect to your being. You're an individual, autonomous being, and you're also a relational, communal being. And so because you and I are so complex and multifaceted, persuasion itself is a complex, multifaceted, multilayered thing. Paul evidently knew this. Because in Acts 26, he's out to persuade King Agrippa and Festus and all of these cultural elites, the most powerful people of his day, to the truth of Christianity. And when you look at the way he goes about it, Paul goes, he goes about persuading them in a very multifaceted, very dynamic, very sophisticated way. Uh, he provides uh, really th three main arguments for why Christianity makes sense. And it's a belief system that you can build your entire life on. And his three uh, cases for Christianity actually serve as a great summary to, to, uh, to basically everything that I've tried to say for the past nine weeks now. So we're going to look at what he has to say, um, and it's going to form our uh, three final ideas of this series. And so with that, I'll get to the first main idea during our time together. Uh, number one, it is very simply that Christianity makes sense rationally. We see this in Acts chapter 26, verse 24, where it says, as he, being Paul, as he was making his defense this way, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, you're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. So Paul has just explained that he saw, that he met Jesus personally and physically because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And, and remember, Festus here was a Gentile, uh, he was an outsider. He wasn't raised in and around Jerusalem. And so he's hearing this message. And, and to put in layman's terms, because his, his response to Paul is very, it's kind of designed to publicly humiliate and discredit Paul. Basically, what, what, what Festus is saying is, hey, Paul, uh, this sounds crazy. You, you know, you're, you're telling us with a straight face that you met a dead Jewish carpenter because he came back to life. I just want to ask you, can you even hear the words that are coming out of your mouth, is basically what Festus is saying to Paul here. And before I get on to Paul's uh, response, I, I want to point out something that might sound very strange to you. I think that Festus's response to Paul, hear that, Festus's response to Paul is actually one of the greatest apologetics for the truth of Christianity that we have. Not Paul's response to Festus, Festus's response to Paul. And here's why. Uh, you, you have probably heard me say this before, but there's a tendency in modern people to look at ancient people with something uh, uh, called, um, I love this phrase, chronological snobbery. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's C.S. Lewis, but I love that phrase, that term. So, so uh, chronological snobbery is, is, is basically, and, and you know this, there's a tendency in modern people to look at ancient people who had a pre-scientific understanding of the world that they lived in, and we have a tendency to believe that ancient people were stupid, that they were gullible, and they were quick to believe literally anything you told them about the world that they lived in, and, and that's not true, but actually Festus's response to that really proves that. Festus's response to Paul here proves that no matter what era, I'm about to say something that's going to sound really strange coming from your pastor, but Festus's response here proves that no matter what era you live in, Christianity is just not a believable-sounding message. How's that to hear your pastor say? This idea that, that a, a dead Jewish carpenter came back to life because he was God, that message is not a, a message that anyone in any era has ever heard and thought, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Let's go with that. I'd actually go so far as to say that if you were trying to make up a lie by which you hoped to mislead a whole lot of people, 
you would come up with something that sounded more convincing than Christianity. Because if Christianity is a lie, it's not even a persuasive lie. It is, as Festus says here, an unbelievable-sounding message. But that, to me, is actually one of the greatest evidences for the truth of Christianity. Because this message, as unbelievable as it sounds, you would have expected it to die out within the generation that it started to spread around. Hear it again. A dead Jewish carpenter came back to life because he was God. People, even Festus, in the ancient world, heard that message and thought, I can't believe something like this. You can't tell me that you actually believe it. You would expect this to die as quickly as it got off the ground, but instead, as we talked about last week, not only did it not die in the first century, but by the year 380, the Roman Emperor Theodosius actually declared that message the official religion of the Roman Empire. And so anybody, to me, anybody that's, that's interested in finding out the truth for themselves has to investigate how something that sounded like Christianity got off the ground and spread the way that it did. Because a message that sounds like that from even Festus' response here, it should have died. So with that, back to our regularly scheduled program here. Festus basically tells Paul, uh, you sound crazy. And now what I want to do is look at Paul's response here because his response is, is as cool it's as calm and it's as intellectual as possible. In the next verse, verse 25, Paul replies, I'm not, out, I'm, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, far more respectful to Festus than Festus was to him. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. So, so notice what Paul does not do there. He doesn't pivot to the emotional you know, Paul does not say, Festus, I know that it sounds crazy, but I believe this with all my heart, and it's changed me. And I was once as you are now, and if you'll simply believe, it'll change you too. That would have been a very emotional appeal. Paul doesn't do anything like that. Instead, what Paul does is he makes a highly rational case because he turns to Agrippa, and this is where he gets really bold. In verse 26, he says, uh, for the king knows about these matters. It's to him I'm actually speaking boldly. But out Festus, wasn't even talking to you, for it's to him I'm actually speaking boldly, for I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his notice since, this is such an important phrase here, and I hope to, I'm going to try to clearly explain why this sets Christianity apart, this phrase, this was not done in a corner. Basically, here's what Paul's saying to Festus. Festus, I get it. Uh, this sounds crazy to you because you're an outsider. You didn't grow up around here. You're coming into all this cold. I get why I sound like a madman to you. However, Agrippa was different. That's why Paul appealed directly to him. Agrippa's family grew up in and around Judea. That's the area that Jesus lived and walked and served and died in. Uh, Agrippa's family lived there for generations, and we know um, historically that Agrippa would have been about eight years old when Jesus died, which meant that he grew up in the aftermath of all of this. And so the reason that Paul could speak so boldly to him, the way that he does here, is because he knew that anyone who lived in and around Jerusalem in the last 20 years, which Agrippa did, anyone who lived in and around Jerusalem in the last 20 years would have been unable to laugh off what Paul was saying here, because there was too much evidence, or to quote Paul, it, it simply didn't happen in a corner. So what exactly is Paul talking about there? Let's just think about this based on what we see in the Bible. Uh, obviously, if you read through the gospel accounts, you will see dozens of highly public, astonishing miracles, um, some of which involved a couple of thousand people at the same time. Uh, but if you read the end of John's gospel account, there's a really interesting phrase that tells us that the miracles of Jesus that were recorded in the gospel accounts actually represent a, a tiny fraction of all the miracles that Jesus actually performed during his time on earth. And so the point is um, that, that, that during Paul's trial, which I believe he was on trial about 20 years after the resurrection, something around there, the point is during Paul's trial, Paul knew there were still thousands and thousands of people who were still alive who had actually witnessed the miracles of Jesus himself. So, so understand Paul's argument here. Paul is not saying, I've had a divine revelation from God and you've got to take my word for it. Paul is saying, hey, this happened publicly, Agrippa. I know that you know this and you have to figure out what that means because you can't laugh this off. So think about how common this would have been. There would have been thousands of conversations exactly like this. Picture two guys walking down the road, and one of them says, man, have you heard about these Christians? I mean, talk about a bunch of lunatics. 
They believe that some dead carpenter came back to life and, and they say they don't need a temple and they don't need sacrifice and they don't even need a priest. You know, what a bunch of clowns. And, and then the guy he's talking to says, yeah, uh, I agree, that is a crazy sounding message, but, you know, I was at that wedding feast at Cana and I remember them running out of wine early because I almost packed up and went home myself, uh, but then Jesus showed up. And I still don't know how he did it, but we had a whole lot of the best wine I've ever had in my life after he showed up. And nobody has really convinced me how he did that apart from a miracle yet. Or, or you know, the Bible says there were, Jesus fed the 5,000, very famous miracle on the hillside out in the wilderness. Actually, the Bible says it was 5,000 men with women and children. There's probably over 10,000 people on that hillside. You know, there would have been a lot of people alive in Paul's lifetime who, same thing, you know, one guy says, man, Christianity sure is nuts. But the, there was thousands of people there who would have said, yeah, I agree with you. It, it's, it's a pretty tough pill to swallow. But I was on the hillside that day. And I'm still trying to figure out how every single one of us ate until we were full from five loaves and two fish. Nobody's explained that away yet. Or Lazarus had friends who watched him get sick and watched him die and watched his body get laid in the tomb and four days later smelled his decaying body. And then they watched their friend Lazarus walk out of that tomb four days later because Jesus told him to. There would have been thousands of conversations taking place in and around Judea just like that during Paul's trial, which is one of the reasons that Paul said you can't laugh this off. But, but in addition to all that and, and, and on top of that and even more importantly than that, you have the fact that the tomb of Jesus was empty. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, and remember, he made this claim only 20 to 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. This is not generations later. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the risen Jesus Christ was seen by over 500 individuals at one time. 500 individuals who were still alive that you could have approached and asked them personally, is Paul making this up or not? 500 individuals who were all claiming they saw the same thing at the same time. Now, let me just point out something. Individuals can hallucinate all kinds of crazy things. But, but 500 people don't hallucinate the same thing at the same time. We have, we have not invented that drug yet that gets 500 people to see the same thing at once. And not only that, but by the time of Paul's trial, a whole lot of those people who claimed to see the resurrected Jesus had already gone on to live transformed lives and even give their life rather than deny what they had seen and wrap your head around this, a lot of them had died at the very hands of Paul before he himself converted to Christianity and was now standing on trial giving a defense for it. And so the point of all that is that you don't die for a hoax. And, and, and so what Paul is doing here, uh, he's making a rational case for Christianity. And what this means for us before I move on from this point is two things that I think are su super important for us to realize, whether you're a Christian or you're kind of considering the truth of Christianity. First off, this means, number one, that Christianity, uh, Christianity is not a blind faith belief system. Christianity from its inception rests on facts that, uh, 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 the fact of events that literally took place in history. This idea of, of accepting this on blind faith would have never made sense to somebody like Paul. Paul was raised with an incredible grasp of the Hebrew scriptures. He would have never abandoned that to believe in Jesus if, if, if Christianity required blind faith. And, and Christianity itself would have never gotten off the ground in the Roman Empire if, if it um, required blind faith. But secondly, on top of that, and I've actually been waiting to kind of come, come at you with this, from this angle, all series, I finally have the chance to do so, and I'm not gonna get another chance. Uh, so just before I move on from this point, the next two points are going to be shorter, so hang, hang with me. Um, let me speak to this. <clears throat> I've actually invited a, a, a number of people who I know are kind of, um, you know, skeptical about Christianity to listen into this series. <clears throat> and I've had the chance to talk with them, you know, as the weeks went by and kind of pick their brain and hear, you know, what, what they find persuasive or what they find, you know, less than persuasive and just hear where their mind goes. One of the things that I've heard by way of, of sort of an objection to Christianity, maybe you've heard this before, maybe you've thought this, I've heard it said that other religious leaders and other historical figures, uh, cult leaders, if you will, uh, throughout history have claimed things in league with what Jesus Christ has claimed. Meaning other people in history have also claimed to be divine, that they were more than human. And actually some of them have, have, have been so convincing 
that they even convinced their followers to die for them. And that's 100% true. Uh, you know, if you, if you want to pan all of human history, uh, there, there's probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people throughout history who have claimed things like the things that Jesus claimed and like the Bible asserts about Jesus. That's true. But let me ask you this, two follow-up questions. Number one, can you name any of them? <clears throat> and and, and even, even if you can, number two, do any of them have people who are still worshiping them today? And the answer is No. Because what all of those cult leaders had in common is, is they did what every other person in history has done when they died, which is stayed dead. But here we are, here we are, 2,000 years later, and every year, billions, with a B, of people are still celebrating the birth, life, death, and resurrection of one religious figure who claimed to be God, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, now even there, let me go a step further. Uh, maybe you hear that because I was trying to think, where would my mind go if I heard this kind of line of reasoning? Maybe you hear that, uh, you know, the idea that there's still so many Christians today and, and that proves that Christianity is true, and you think, well, hang on, that doesn't prove anything. Because there's also a whole lot of Buddhists today. There's a lot of uh, Muslims today. There's a lot of Hindus today. So what does it actually prove that, that, that you know, people are, are, um, are still Christians? And, and why does that, you know, why not the other three major belief systems, and why not uh, you know, why can't they be as valid or, or valid instead of Christianity? And here's an answer to that that I think is a good answer. I can understand why, for instance, Buddhism still has uh, adherents or followers or people subscribe to it today because Buddha himself never claimed to be God. Uh, the, the, uh, the famous last words, maybe you've heard this before, but the famous last words of Buddha, it's so interesting we compare Buddha's last words to Jesus's. The last words of Buddha very famously were strive without ceasing. That's the difference between, you know, Buddhism, really every other belief system, and Christianity. Jesus's last words, it is finished. Buddha says, strive without ceasing, because Buddha never came down here saying, hey, just relax. I got you covered. All you have to do is believe in me, and I will ensure that your soul is saved, because I'm a divine being, and I have the power to rescue the souls of people who put their trust in me. Never claimed anything like that, and same thing with Muhammad. Muhammad never claimed to be Allah in the flesh. He, he simply claimed to be uh, um, um, a, a spokesperson or a prophet uh, of Allah, never claimed to be divine. Uh, so I can understand why their words outlived them because their words did not depend on them. But Jesus said something that none of them said. Because when Jesus came down here, he did not say, I know the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father because I and the Father are one. Over and over and over through the gospel account, specifically John's gospel account, Jesus repeatedly makes the claim that he did not simply come down here to help you find God, but that he was God and he's come all this way to find you. Now, when you do that, when you make that claim, pardon the cliche, but the game changes for your belief system. If all you claim is to have some divine revelation about who God is, your ideas cannot live you for generations because your ideas don't depend on you. But when you claim to be God and when you center the hope of your belief system on yourself, things change. Uh, so for instance, I don't know how on earth I would do this, but if I could somehow convince people that I was divine during my lifetime, and maybe I could get two or three people to actually believe it, but if I did have people actually gullible enough to believe that I was more than a human, then when I die, if I stay dead, my movement dies, and I don't have any more followers, and really that's what should have happened to Jesus. But for Jesus to claim to be God, which is something that no other founder of any other major belief system claimed, uh, it, for him to center the hope of Christianity on himself meant that when he died, his belief, his belief system should have died with him, but obviously history tells us it didn't. And instead, this belief system known as Christianity not only survived hundreds of years of persecution in the Roman Empire, but it went on to transform the Roman Empire, and from there to permeate every culture of mankind with a kind of diversity that we've never seen in any other belief system. And I say all that to say, for, for all of that begs the question for anybody who's really interested in finding out the truth, that fact alone should have you asking, how is this possible? 
And to anybody who, who's, who, like Agrippa, is skeptical to the truth claims of Christianity and not quite sure about this yourself, I would simply tell you the same thing that Paul told Agrippa that day almost 2,000 years ago. Whether you believe this or not, don't pretend that you can laugh this off. This is not a ridiculous belief system because this is based on events that, to quote Paul, did not happen in a corner. It's based on events that literally happened. And the fact that we're still talking about it today in and of itself demands investigation. So number one, Christianity makes sense rationally. All right, that was the longest point. I just wanted to lay the foundation with that. Building off of that idea, we'll get to our, our, our um, second idea today. Paul tells us that number two, Christianity makes sense emotionally, which is probably a strange thing to hear. Um, but if you, if you walk through Paul's whole um, discourse here from start to finish, which we're picking it up in, in, in verse 22, but if you start at the beginning of chapter 26, you'll notice that what Paul is basically doing here for a lot of his discourse is he's just giving his testimony. And he's explaining that, that uh, you know, before he, he became a follower of Jesus, Paul was a Pharisee, student of a, a man named Gamaliel, which was a very uh, strict, kind of intellectually robust house of training. Paul was basically a religious PhD in his day. Probably, if there is something higher than that, then I would say Paul was probably even above that level. And, and as a Pharisee, Paul lived to honor the law of God. Uh, that was his whole meaning in life. But at a certain point in his life, and in Romans chapter 7, Paul gives us a really unique kind of behind-the-scenes look in his life. Something went on in Paul's heart that led to him becoming a Christian that, that actually needs to happen in your heart if faith is going to come home for you. Uh, so in Romans chapter 7, what's clear, Paul's, Paul's being really kind of self-referential, and he's explaining that um, at some point in his life, he was studying the Ten Commandments, which he knew and he had memorized as a Pharisee, but for, he, was, he was kind of dwelling on them and, and I guess taking some kind of self-inventory. And uh, he got to the 10th commandment, which says not to covet. That, that particular commandment is, according to Romans 7, the commandment that really got Paul. And he says that that commandment came home to him and it killed him. If you read that, that section in the, in the New King James, or pardon me, the King James, the King Jimmy version of the Bible, it says it slew him, which is a really interesting way to phrase what Paul is saying. What he's saying, here, here's what he means. If you read through the, the 10 commandments, you'll notice that, that at least with the first nine, you can sort of read the first nine commandments through a, a strictly behavioral lens, and you can convince yourself that you're doing a pretty good job of living a life that pleases God because it says things like don't bow down to idols, honor your parents, keep the Sabbath, don't lie, don't steal, don't kill, uh, you don't commit adultery, all those kinds of things. You can go through those first nine and kind of you know, check, 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 all right, I, I think I'm pretty good. But then you get to the 10th commandment. And the 10th commandment says, thou shalt not covet. Now, that is a strictly internal command that deals exclusively with your heart that cannot be understood in a behavioral way. Because what it means, you know, the, the positive aspect of you should not covet means that you should love God so much and you should rest in God's love for you so much. You should trust God so much that you are perpetually content no matter what he leads you through in this life. So, so, for instance, let's say you're a person who has tried very hard to be a good person and live a good life, but you, you've arrived at some point in your life where you look around and you realize, you know, your marriage really is, is not doing all that great, or maybe you have a strained relationship with your kids, or maybe you're not where you want to be in your career financially, or, or whatever it is, you, there, there's something about your life that you're not where you want to be, and then you kind of look around at other people and you notice, you know, the people around you haven't worked as hard as you have haven't tried as hard as you have, haven't you know, lived with as much integrity and character as you have, and yet they seem to be having a much easier time in life than you have, this command, thou shalt not covet, means that you shouldn't even notice that. You should be so satisfied by the love that God has for you personally that you're perpetually content. Now, anybody with any, any level of self-awareness has to quickly arrive at the conclusion, I simply can't do that. I can't decide to love God like that or rest in God's love for me like that. Paul realized that about himself when he was really thinking through what God's commands were requiring of him. When he realized that, when he says it, that command killed him, when it says he died, what he basically means is that he had an existential crisis because like I said earlier, keeping God's law wasn't just a, it wasn't a hobby for Paul. 
you know, as a Pharisee, keeping God's law, living a life that honored God according to, 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 to God's law, that, that was his entire reason for being. That's what his entire identity was wrapped up in. It's what his hope rested in. And so here that law that he was living to keep just re- revealed to him that he could not do what it required him to do, that he fell short of, 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 of God's perfect standard. Uh, but then what happened in Paul's life, and, and that needed to happen before this next thing happened. But in realizing that he couldn't keep those commands, what happened in the story of Paul is the gospel was revealed to him. And when the gospel dawned on Paul, what he realized was that the thing that he wanted the most his entire life would never be his except through Jesus. Because the gospel says that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that Paul came to a painful awareness he couldn't live. And the gospel says that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for the sins and, and, and absorb the judgment of God that Paul knew he himself deserved. And so when Paul understood that, he understood that the thing that he wanted most in life, which was to live a life that honored God's law, to live this life that was pleasing to God, to be a, a, a person of righteousness, Paul understood that the only way he could get that was through Jesus. And so the gospel basically did two things in his life that it needs to do in all of our lives. First off, it showed him where all the turmoil in his life had come from, but then secondly, it resolved that turmoil from him. Now, in, in saying all that, I realize that most people listening to this are probably not going to be either Orthodox Jews or Pharisees. Most people are not in that place, but we all need to understand if, if, if faith is really going to come home in a transformative way for us, we all need to understand what Paul came to under, understand personally, which is that Christianity makes sense uh, not just rationally, but emotionally. In, in other words, if you really want to be transformed by the message of Christianity, you need to see how Christianity not just makes sense in history, but how it deeply, subjectively, and personally makes sense of your life. You may have been in a place where you've heard the gospel your entire life, this message that you're a sinner and that you need salvation and that we all tend to look outside of God for salvation, but God has freely offered us salvation in Jesus. You may have heard that message your entire life, but it's only when the gospel on the one hand starts to point out what's wrong with you. In other words, when the gospel begins to show you that you've been looking to something or someone else to give you what only Jesus can give you, and that's the real source of the turmoil in your life, when on the one hand the gospel does that, but on, but on the other hand, when the gospel begins to, re, to, to, to heal you, when the gospel begins to fulfill you, because in, in our culture, very few people are living to honor the law of God. What's more common is people are living for romantic love. People are living for career success. People are living for you know, comfort and stability and security and respect and applause and approval and all those kinds of things. It's only when we see... <coughs> that only in Jesus Christ can we get the significance and the security and the safety and the love that our hearts are designed to need, the meaning in life, the identity that doesn't depend on our performance, all that kind of stuff. It's only when we can see that it's only in Jesus Christ that our, you know, the deepest longings of our hearts can be resolved and that the plot lines of our life resolve. When that happens, that's when Christianity is, is beginning to make emotional sense to you, and that needs to happen in order for faith to come home and, and, and to actually become alive and active and transformative in your life. But even that is not all that there was to Paul's argument, and, and, and so this is going to bring us to our, our third, and this will be our, our, our final idea um, in our series. Number three, what we see in Paul's words here is that Christianity makes biblical sense. In uh, verses 22 and 23, Paul says, to this very day, I've obtained help that comes from God. And I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and then as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. And what Paul is saying there is is not only does Christianity make sense rationally, that it literally took place in history, not only does Christianity um, make sense emotionally, not only did it help him make sense of his life, but thirdly, he's actually saying, and this is such a powerful thing for a person like Paul to say, he's saying that the gospel alone is what can make sense of the Bible. Paul... uh, Paul knew the scriptures his entire life. Paul had a grasp of the Hebrew Old Testament in a way that no one who listens to this teaching will probably even be able to 
to, to fathom. I mean, he, he was born and raised on this as a, as a Pharisee. But what he's saying here is that it's only when he understood how Jesus fulfilled absolutely everything that he read from Genesis to Malachi. It's only when he understood how every one of those verses ultimately found their fulfillment in Jesus. Paul said it's then and only then that that book truly came alive for him. And I don't know how many stories, if you just talk to Christians, it is it, it, one of the most common things you'll hear in Christians is how oftentimes they had read the Bible before, maybe they'd heard the Bible preached their whole life, but, but when faith came home to them, it was, it, a light came on. It was like they, they, they'd never heard this message before. It was like hearing it for the first time. Uh, and, and, and that makes sense because the place where the rational and, and the emotional really come together in a way that persuades you is in the context of the big, biblical. Because when you read the Bible, Specifically, the gospel accounts that focus on the life of Jesus Christ. What, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but when you're reading about the story of Jesus Christ, what you're actually being presented with is the final argument, the final case for Christianity. Because in the end, Christianity does not simply offer you a, a number of propositions and arguments to consider. It offers you a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the reason that Christianity is both uh, rationally and emotionally fulfilling because when you study the person of Jesus on the one hand, I, I really believe this. Wherever you're at you know, with faith, wherever you're at with Christianity, I really do believe this, that if you will simply take all the time that's needed to study the person of Jesus as revealed in the gospel accounts, you will find you can't help but find him captivating. When you see this one human being who was the full embodiment of grace and truth at the same time without a compromise of either, you will find yourself completely captivated by him, which will be you know, emotionally, personally, psychologically fulfilling for you. But when you keep reading, I really do believe this, you'll find yourself, whether you want to think like this or not, you'll find yourself saying, this kid, they couldn't have just made this up. There's no way some author 2,000 years ago just invented this literary figure, Jesus, who then went on to have the kind of impact that Jesus has had on history. There has to be something to this. <clears throat> it's both rational and emotional at the same time, which is what it should be. And so with that, we have arrived at the end of our series called Belief in the Age of Skepticism. The very last question that I want to answer during our time together is, what are you supposed to do with all this? And I'm glad you asked. So when I was 19 years old, an atheist preached me the sermon that changed my life. <clears throat> and I love the way that sentence sounds. I was, uh, if you know anything about my story, I was born and raised around the faith. My father and my uncle were pastors. I went to private school first through 12th grade, and I'm positive that by the time I graduated high school, I, I'm positive I had heard over 1,000 sermons and there's a lot of advantages to that life, but um, kind of looking back, I think the greatest danger in an environment like the one that I was raised in is there's this tendency to know so much about the message of Christianity that you can actually miss the point of it. And in a, in a way, <clears throat> that's almost where Paul was. You know, he was so immersed in the scriptures that he was missing the forest for the trees. He missed, you know, who the scriptures were ultimately pointing to and what this whole thing was, was really supposed to be about. Um, anyway, that was me. And when I got out of high school, it was the summer that I was uh, 19 years old. Uh, it, it had become pretty, pretty apparent to anybody who knew me that, that um, the faith that I professed had very little, if any, impact on my life. And it was during that time that I developed a friendship with a guy uh, named Chris. <clears throat> who uh, Chris was a really interesting guy because just like me, uh, he was born and raised in the faith. And he told me that when he was younger, he, he went to youth group and he went to those big conferences uh, like Creation and Acquire the Fire that you were supposed to go to in the 90s. And uh, he talked about crying over his faith in that room full of emotion and all that kind of stuff. But Chris had experienced a good amount of suffering in his life uh, to the point that he had abandoned the faith altogether. He walked out on it entirely um, to the point that by the time our paths crossed, uh, he was a professing atheist. <clears throat> but the thing that made Chris uh, so interesting was having been raised in the faith, he had an incredible grasp of Scripture, actually a better grasp than I had at the time. And so he knew uh, more about my faith than I did. 
And, uh, and he knew enough to know that it was completely ridiculous for me to claim that uh, this was my belief system when I was living a life that so obviously denied that. And so we were on the phone one night, <clears throat> and I, was, uh, I remember I was sitting on the edge of my bed in my room at my dad's house, and we were going round and round, and uh, he was just, he, he was kind of, rel- he was relentless. He was really good at arguing and debating, and he was persuasive and all that stuff. And he was telling me um, just how illogical and how inconsistent it was for me to live the life that I was living while claiming the faith that I claimed. And looking back, I have no idea why he even cared that much. But I was using every Bible verse ripped out of context to try to justify myself and dag on it for every verse that I told him. He had about three that shut me down until eventually he just bottom-lined the whole, I'm going to call it a sermon, with a phrase that I don't think I'll ever forget. He simply said, here it is. If you want to hear the statement that kind of caused my life to change on a dime, here's what he said. Ryan, if God means that much to you, you'll give it up. And he wasn't talking about giving up a particular activity uh, or behavior. He was talking about giving up the idea that I got to call the shots in my own life. You know, giving up control of how my life was going to go, giving up on the idea that I knew what it would take to satisfy me, giving up on the idea that I was competent to be the God of my own life. He said, if God means that much to you like you claim he does, then you'll give it up. And I hung up the phone that night sitting on the edge of that bed, and I knew with just crystal clarity that from that moment forward, my life was going to proceed in one of two ways. I was either going to commit my life to the faith that I'd heard about for 19 years, or for the very first time in my life, I was going to admit that this faith really didn't mean anything to me, that God himself didn't really mean anything to me. And I don't know if that was the moment that I got saved. Uh, I just know that that's the moment in my life when all of those metaphors that people who get saved use finally started making sense to me. Because after that, I remember feeling like my eyes were opened. And I remember reading the Bible and kind of wondering, why didn't anybody tell me how great this book was? Meanwhile, they've been trying to do it for 19 years. And nobody had to tell me to read it. They had to, you know, kind of pull me out of it. I was, you know, reading it multiple times a day, calling up my buddies and leaving voicemails about how cool this statement of Romans 12 is. I don't know what the heck it means, but I'm going to find out and all that kind of stuff. There was a joy. There was an excitement. There was a vibrancy that the people around me noticed. And, of course, here I am 15 years later uh, telling that story to a church that I'm pastoring, which (laughs) I did not see coming at 19 years of age. But I, I tell that story just to make one final point in this series and maybe it's the most important point that, that somebody listening to this can hear. My life didn't change because of something I heard. It changed because I committed myself to believing what I had heard. That's the reason that Paul's life's changed. Uh, it's the reason, actually, that anybody who's had their life transformed by Jesus has had their life changed. It's not just because of something they heard. It's because somewhere along the line, they decided to commit to what they heard. And so what I wanted to do, what I thought was most appropriate before we close this series out is give you the opportunity to commit to what you've heard. Uh, Maybe you're a Christian and you've been following along in this series and and you, you already believe all of this stuff. Uh, you know, you, you've, you've already, you know, you could sign our statement of faith. You got it. You know, you haven't heard anything that new, but, but maybe, you know, as we've talked about over the last nine weeks, who God is and what sin is and who Jesus is, uh, and what his resurrection means and how amazing the salvation is that he has purchased for you and who the Holy Spirit is who helps you walk out that salvation and what your hope is like at the end of history because of what Jesus has done for you. Maybe as you've heard those kinds of things over the last several weeks that you know between you and God, and that's all that really matters anyway, what you know between you and God. Maybe you know, if you were being honest, that somewhere along the line, this whole thing stopped being real to you. You know, and it's, it's not that, that you stopped believing. It's not that you're denying it now. It's just that maybe it was a slow and steady process, but somewhere along the line, this became more of an abstract idea in the back of your mind than the foundation that you're building your entire life on. And, and, and you've known that for a while. It's been unsettling to you, and you know you can't stay there. Or on the other hand, maybe you've been a part of this series. You've been tuning in in person or online, and you've never committed to this in the first place. 
that you have never made the personal decision. Maybe you've been going to church for a while. Maybe you've heard this message for years, but you know you've never made the personal decision to follow Jesus, to trust him enough to commit your entire life to him. And if either of those scenarios hits home with you, if that resonates with you, if that sounds like you, then I wanna, I wanna end this series by giving you the opportunity to do what I needed to do when I was 19 years old, which is to commit yourself to being a person of belief in the age of skepticism. And I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand and I'm not gonna ask you to walk an aisle. I'm just gonna pray a prayer of commitment. And if God is laying this on your heart and you're ready to either recommit to this or commit for the very first time, then I wanna invite you to pray along with me. You can borrow my words. There's nothing magical about them. It's not an incantation. It's just all about the heart behind them. And so I'd ask us all if we could bow our heads and close in prayer. And while we do that, worship team, you can come on up. <clears throat> and one last time, if, if you know that you need to either commit or recommit yourself to Jesus, then you're welcome to pray along with me now. Lord Jesus, I've tried to live my own way. I've looked outside of you for what can only be found in you. And I'm done living that way. So from this day forward, I'm committing my life to you because you first committed your life to me. Please give me the strength to follow you all the days of my life. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. If you, um, if you just prayed that prayer with me, if, if you're joining us online, please reach out to us and let us know simply so that we can celebrate with you and pray with you. But if you're in the house today and you prayed that prayer with me, if, if, if you have questions, if you'd like to have somebody pray for you or, or, or you just want somebody to talk to, at the end of the service, I'm going to be right up front. I'm going to hang out, and you're more than welcome to come on up, and I'd love to offer you whatever support I can. But other than that, I hope this series has meant something to you, and I hope your faith is stronger than when we began. That's it. That's all. Let's worship God. <clears throat>